as we just continue our study in Romans. So turn with me there uh, to Romans chapter 15. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, For those of you that are recognizing that we're getting to the end of the book of Romans, like there's not a lot more to flip past. You're probably on the last maybe page in your Bible. You may wonder where we're going. Well, mid-July, early July, we're going to start a topical series on biblical marriage. And so we're going to spend about eight or nine weeks on the topic of biblical marriage. And then we're going to pick up a book study um, from the Old Testament. We're going to start studying through the book of Ecclesiastes verse by verse following that series. I just kind of wanted to let you know where we're going and where we're heading as we wrap up uh, the book of Romans. But last week, uh, we began to look at Paul's unique ministry. Paul had a very unique and special ministry given to him, as we learned last week, by the grace of God. Um, In fact, uh, in verse 16, we looked at the words ministering and minister. Remember that that last or that middle word, the ministering, the gospel of God was was actually used of temple sacrifice, temple uh, rituals, temple work. And so he's got a sacred ministry. We were saying last week, he had his, he's got this special sacred ministry. We're going to continue looking at that this morning, what this sacred ministry uh, was. And this morning, we're going to see how God took this special ministry, this unique ministry given to Paul and allowed him to stand out amongst all others. In other words, he validated and verified Paul's ministry. And we're going to see how he did that. And then we're also going to see Paul's personal strategy. You know, uh, it's always interesting to me. I had a friend years ago, and he would, uh, he would always get into conversations with other pastors at pastor's conferences. There was, they would always talk about building a church, building the church. And how do you build the church? And how do you plant churches? And how do you establish churches? And how do you do all these kind of things? And, and what my friend found very interesting and comical is everybody would, would come with human-reliant kind of strategies, you know, and it's usually involved having smoke on the stage and some kind of lighting effects and certain kind of instruments or, uh, you know, whatever, changing the oil out in the parking lot to kind of make coming to church convenient, you know, knock out two things, kind of that Walmart principle, you know, I, I can go to the bathroom here, I can get my oil changed, I can get coffee, I can get donuts. And I guess while I'm here waiting for my coffee, my oil to get changed, I'll just listen to a sermon. Uh, and they and they had all these strategies. And my friend said, "Well, what about what about the Word of God? Maybe we should start there and work our way out." And and you know they said that's a novel idea. That's an incredible idea. Well, interesting enough, today we're going to see Paul's personal strategy on church planting. And so that's going to be an interesting thing to consider. But before we jump into verse 18, we've got to pick back up in verse 17. This is where we left off last week. Uh, and the reason we've got to pick up there is because he he's, says, therefore, right? So he's going to be building on what he's just been teaching. Therefore, based on what? Well, based on the fact that, that grace had been given to him, a ministry had been given to him, and it was a sacred ministry. Therefore, he says, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. And then we pick up in verse 18. And what we're going to see is that Paul was not interested in bragging in one way, but he was interested in bragging in another way. And so we're going to see what he wasn't interested in bragging as we read verse 18. He says, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. And you know, when Paul says, I would not dare, this was a way of him saying, you know, I don't even have the courage to say or, or the boldness or the confidence to even utter a word about any of the things that I've done in ministry, except for the things which Christ has accomplished through him. Now, it's really interesting because when you put that in perspective to most modern day people in ministry, what's the first thing they talk about? Let me tell you what I've accomplished. In fact, we live in a resume culture, right? I can't just walk into a room of pastors without everyone comparing what is the size of our church, how many people we've led to the Lord in the past year, what we've done here, how we're growing here. How we're, you know, imagine walking to a room full of pastors. How's the church going? Oh, we're shrinking in number. Yeah, it's not going well. We, we got a lot of conflict there. People are leaving the church left and right. And I've seen it happen in a room and people go, okay, nice to meet you. You know, it's like, I don't want to get hit by that lightning. You know, something's wrong over there. And yet Paul, even in his ministry, in fact, 
Hold your place there and go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to see Paul's attitude about his ministry. And I'm going to read through this quickly, but 2 Corinthians 10, 13 through 18, I just want you to see his attitude about his ministry. Now, if anyone had reason to boast about his ministry, come on, Paul, just let it go, man. You can, you can boast. I mean, we've seen what you've done. We've heard all about you, Paul. But notice his attitude, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 13. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. We are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. And then notice this, verse 17, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For he who commends himself is approved uh, for, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Do you realize that Paul recognizes that the value and the, and the truth of his ministry only lies in what Jesus Christ has accomplished through him? That means that he recognized that there were things that he did in his ministry that he probably did not do through the resources of Jesus Christ. And in that day at the Bema seat, those would be rendered invalid. Those would be evaluated as not worthy of fruit or reward. And even Paul recognized this. Even Paul said, I don't even have the confidence to tell you which one of those things that I've done is actually pleasing to the Lord. But you know what? I'm going to leave that to the Lord and I'm going to keep walking by faith. That's kind of his mindset here. And so he's, go back with me to, to Romans 15. So he was done or he, he was not interested in, in boasting or taking credit for any of his accomplishments, any of his perceived attainments. He's not interested in building his empire. He wasn't even interested in convincing you that his ministry was acceptable to God. He was just laying it out there. He was just involved in terms of walking with the Lord. And, you know, one of the things that you find interesting about Paul is Paul learned this. This this wasn't something that he had his whole life. In fact, there was a day in Paul's life before he got saved. Do you know what he was very much into? Hey, guys, check out my resume. And this is going to really impress you. In fact, for a Jewish man of his day, when Paul broke out his resume, everyone hushed up and got quiet. They said, ooh, we got to listen to this guy. This guy is legit. This guy is a man of God. In fact, we see it in Philippians chapter 3. Let me just read a couple of verses to you. In verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I mean, he, he's just being honest. That's how he felt. It, you want to boast about your resume and your background and how you accomplish things for God? Sit down for a second. Let me tell you about me. Because I guarantee I'm going to upgrade or take you up a notch from where you just went. And it's kind of like going into a room. You're, you're interviewing for a job. And imagine sitting next to somebody and you're, you're, you think, man, I, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I got a bachelor's degree. I, you know, I kind of graduated top of my class. I, I got a really good shot at this job. And then you're sitting next to somebody in the waiting room. And they're like, hey, what are you here for? And I'm here for this job. And they say, that's the job I'm here for too. Really? What's your background? Well, I graduated from Harvard. Uh, I've got my master's degree from Princeton. And I've got my doctorate degree at Georgia Tech. There you go, Mark. He got, I mean, it's, so I, we got to throw in some local flavor and honor that school just up the road, right? So this really impressive resume, how do you think the guy sitting next to him is going to feel? Ooh, <laughs> let me just withdraw my name because I don't have a chance. Paul was that, that guy that was dropping degrees on the table, right? Look at how he goes on. Verse five, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. And he just dropped his resume down and said, he's the only one in the room left, right? Because he had this resume. But now I want you to understand how he now viewed this resume and, and how he got to this mindset that I'm not even gonna speak or have confidence or even brag about anything that Jesus Christ hasn't accomplished through me. Look at how he goes on in verse seven. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. 
Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung, your translation may say, that I may gain Christ. Why? Verse nine, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. And you see, Paul was done boasting in his accomplishments. He was completely done because he understood for the first time when he put his faith in Jesus Christ that his righteousness was not good enough. No matter what he did, what he accomplished, that was not good enough. And you know what else he learned in the Christian life? His best efforts at living a righteous life weren't good enough either. He needed Jesus Christ. You know, it's one of those things that we say, it, it's a dual revelation. When you're unsaved, the first thing you need to realize is you need a savior. You don't have the righteousness needed to get to heaven. You need a righteousness equal to God's. Good works aren't gonna get it to you, get it for you. Stopping certain things isn't gonna get it for you. Start doing certain things isn't gonna get it for you. You need a savior. God provided a savior that could provide the righteousness that you need. He died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty that you deserved. God raised him from the dead to convince you and I to put our faith in his finished work for us. That's how we gain the righteousness of God. And see, an unbeliever needs to come to the point where they say, I can't obtain that righteousness on my own. And when they see that, they see a need for a savior. They put their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, and they're saved. God says they're justified. They're declared righteous by faith. But you know what believers also need to realize? You're not going to live the Christian life on your own. If you seek to live it by law, through your own efforts, through your own strategies, you will fail. You will have a miserable Christian existence because God did not design you to live the Christian life in your own strength. So we've covered that in the book of Romans, but we got to come back to it because the tendency is this. If I just wake up earlier, read a little bit more, pray a little bit more, do a little bit more evangelism, do a little bit more church things, then I'll eventually grow spiritually. And you don't grow spiritually through self-effort. You grow spiritually by walking by means of the Spirit. That is a faith walk. That's relying upon God's resources, not your own. And see, every believer needs, needs to get to that point as well. And see, this is one of the things that Paul began to recognize, I believe, in his ministry. In fact, it's very interesting. We look at this in the introduction of any letter that Paul writes, and it's one of those, those truths or tidbits that you, you catch and you say, oh, that's pretty cool, but we forget about it. But remember what Paul's name used to be, or the name that he used to go by, Saul. And you know what Saul means in the Hebrew? Desired one, important one. And does it, isn't that how his resume reads? I'm Mr. Important. I'm circumcised, I'm this, I'm that. Let me just drop down my resume. Then he begins to go by his Greek name, Paul. You know what Paul means? Little one, insignificant one. You know, Paul took the words of John the Baptist to heart. Jesus Christ must increase, I must decrease. And you can even see it in the way that he identified himself. And you want to say it this way. He had become wholly lost and encompassed in what Jesus Christ wanted to accomplish in and through him. You know, and I, I firmly believe that Paul, with this attitude, if Jesus Christ would have said somewhere in the middle, Paul, we're taking your ministry. I'm turning that over to Timothy. I want you to clean trash cans. Paul would say, I'm in. Give me the trash cans. I'll do it. Because all he wanted to do was what Christ wanted to do through him. That's why in Galatians 2.20, he can say, it's not I who live, but what? but Christ who lives in me. My responsibility is now to walk by faith in the Son of God. You see, he gets encompassed in what Jesus Christ wants to do. Now, what were the things that he would speak of? He did speak of some things, and he, he said, the things Christ accomplished through me in word and deed. And I want to point this out. I pointed it out this week, last week, because this, I think, is so important. Notice the wording in verse 18. It's not what I accomplished through Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus Christ accomplished through me. You see that subtle emphasis. It, that, to me, is the difference between a person who is walking by faith and somebody who is trying to do great things for Jesus Christ. You know, and that's one of the, one of the things, especially, I think, that young people 
who are interested in walking with the Lord get caught up in. They want to do great things for Jesus Christ. And I love that enthusiasm. I, I, I just, I want it to, I would drink it. If they could bottle it, I would drink it myself, right? I would drink it. But as you get older, you get more and more comfortable with how God has made you, how he's wired you, the situation that he's put you in, your circumstances, your spouse, your circle of friends, your geography of the country. And you know what? You may never be in front of a stadium of 60,000 people, but you know what? You can still do great things for Jesus Christ. And this is how it's done. Don't, don't worry about what you're doing for Jesus Christ. In fact, we talk about this all the time, but when we look at John 15, he says, abide in the vine, Right? that you can bear what? Much fruit. We've talked about this all the time, but which direction is abiding? Is it me looking over my fruit branch, me determining how successful I am, me determining what I'm doing for Jesus Christ and if it's working or not? That's not it at all. Abiding's going this way, back into the root. Christianity is about enjoying a love relationship with Jesus Christ. You think he can accomplish through you what he's designed to accomplish through you? You bet. But when you start trying to look at it yourself and control circumstances and do this and do that, you're going to miss the exact resources that are at your disposal. Just enjoy Jesus Christ. When, when the Lord leads you to do something, walk by faith and step out in faith and do it. That's what it is. It's, it's trusting the Lord. It's walking by faith. It's leaning on him. In fact, when he uses this word accomplish, it means to carry about or to carry out a task until it's finished. And you know, Paul understood that he was inadequate. He, he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, I am insufficient of myself. I, not that our sufficiency is of, our, of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of Christ. He understood that there were tasks that Jesus Christ would accomplish through him, but that he was yet insufficient for. He wasn't qualified for. He would feel like he wasn't the best man for the job. You know, and this is really where this whole point comes home. What about you? You know, what about, what about us? What about us? You know, there are different types of people in this room this morning, just in a size this small. There are people in here <clears throat> who need to hear a message that you don't have it all together. You, you need to hear that because you, you and I are overconfident in our abilities. Maybe God has gifted you with the ability to, to take a lot of uh, lemons and, and turn them into lemonade. Maybe you have that ability in life. Maybe you've just been gifted with natural patience. Maybe you've been gifted with people. Maybe you've been gifted to teach the word of God. Maybe you have been gifted to evangelize. Maybe you have been gifted with a mind that figures out problems in your day-to-day life. Maybe you have a skill set that if you put it on a resume, it'd be like, whoa, put that person right up to the front of the line. If that's you this morning, you probably need to hear the message that you're insufficient of yourself. You... You need to be convinced and bought in that you can't figure everything out, that you can't handle everything that life throws at you, that you actually need the Lord. More so than just signing off on that on a doctrinal statement, actually recognizing it in your life. And you know, I've said this before, but we we have circumstances and trials that come up in life. And some of us immediately turn to the Lord and some of us immediately turn to our plans. And it's not that you don't plan or strategize or use the skill set God's given you. Maybe you're very organized. You've got, you know how to solve problems. That's great. But the point is this, God doesn't want you doing that independently of him. That's the whole point. Now, there's a separate group in here this morning that says this. You know what, John? You don't have to tell me I'm insufficient. Man, I got that message. <laughs> in fact, I can't do anything, nor, nor would God want to use me because I'd probably screw it up. And you know what? The message for you is... 180 degrees from the message from somebody else. Yes, you're not sufficient, but your God is. You're not sufficient, but you can do the exact job that God wants to accomplish in and through you if you'll simply rely on his resources and walk by faith. And so there's really two messages there. Paul 
was the type of guy, guy that had everything going from him for him from a natural standpoint. He knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. You know, when you look at just Jewish culture and the amount of scripture that these young men had to memorize by the time they were 13, it, it would blow your socks off. I mean, it would put our Awana program to shame, the amount of scripture they had to memorize and recite it even at their bar mitzvah. This guy knew the word of God, but you know what else Paul carried with him? I believe was a deep sense of guilt once he got saved and once God began to use him in a primary role to his church and he said, I'm not worthy. I used to kill these people. I used to drag them out of their house. I was the worst kind of sinner that could possibly exist. That's what you get when you get in, in, into 2 Timothy and Paul says, I, you know, I'm not even worthy. He says, and, I'm, and I am the chief of sinners. And that was Paul's own understanding. So he could relate, I think, to both sides of the equation. How could you use me, Lord? I'm such a, I've done so many bad things. I've failed you miserably. And so I think Paul could understand both sides of the equations. But you know what? All of us, no matter where you're at today, you can brag about something. You can brag about what Jesus Christ is accomplishing through you. That's, that's something to be excited of. That's something to be excited about. Now, what we're going to see from this passage is that Jesus did not only do this through Paul's words, his preaching and teaching ministry, but he also did it through Paul's deeds. We'll see in verse 19 what he's talking about specifically. It's the signs and wonders that he did through the apostle Paul. And there was a purpose for it. There was an an end goal um, in in verse 18 listed. And that purpose was this, uh, the Gentiles would listen and believe what Paul was teaching. That was the purpose. In fact, when we see this word obedient, uh, it simply means this, to, to listen to something or to hearken to something. Now, any of you that has <clears throat> kids or any of you who has been a kid, so that should qualify everybody in this room, you know the type of listening that we're talking about. Or any of you that are married to husbands, you know the type of listening <laughs> that we're talking about, you know, and, and I'm using that as a very general uh, I don't want to offend anybody, but, you know, typically husbands are known for when they used to read papers, you know, the, the wife would be having a conversation with them and the husband doesn't even know what's going on, right? He's just like reading his paper. He's listening like, like sounds are actually hitting his eardrums, right? But he's not listening. We're, we're talking about listening with the heart to do it. Listening with the heart to respond. That's what we're talking about when we see this word obey. In, in Paul's unique ministry to the Gentiles, what we're going to see is that Jesus Christ accomplished much. How? Through Paul's words and through these accompanying deeds. Now, one of the things, uh, the very first thing, and, and we always talk about this, but you know, you don't talk to an unsaved person about alcoholism. Because, and, and kicking alcohol. Now, that might be something they need. That might be something they would benefit from. But they need the gospel. Because too many people have focused on alcoholism. And now people go to hell sober instead of going to hell drunk. And it didn't actually change their eternal destiny. Because we got so occupied with this issue out here. When the message that unbelievers need to hear is the gospel. The gospel. The good news that Jesus died for their sins and rose again. And this is why in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul talks about the Thessalonians obeyed the gospel. Now that's, a, that's an interesting uh, phrase to consider because how do you obey a finished work? How do you obey or do something when, when everything's already been done? So what's he talking about when he says, Obey the gospel. Well, what's the command that goes along with the gospel? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you obey the gospel? You put your faith in the one who died for you and rose again, who, who paid it all. You take God at his word and you put your faith and reliance upon your Savior. That's how you obey the gospel. So that, I believe that was one thing that God was accomplishing through Paul, through his words, and through these signs and wonders. The second thing, I believe, is that Paul wanted them to obey his instruction on how do you live righteously. And you know what? This is where many Christians break down. We've talked about this uh, ad nauseum, but it's, it's ad nauseum for a reason because we just don't get it. I was, I was driving, I mean, I was, I was driving the other day 
And I was really disappointed in myself. Something I had done with my family, I was really disappointed in the way I'd handled the situation. I won't get into details because um, there's, <laughs> there's too many details, but um, I'm really disappointed. And you know, immediately what comes into my mind? Oh man, I should be praying more. Oh man, I should, I should be reading my Bible more. Oh man, I should be doing this more. I mean, for goodness sakes, guys, I'm a pastor. I kind of like read my Bible all the time. Like that's part of my job. Like I do that on a daily basis. And, and immediately my mind goes to legalism. Immediately my mind goes to self-reliant human strategy. If I just did this more, did this less, started doing this. If I started listening to this kind of music, if I stopped listening to this kind of music, if I, and, and legalistic human reliant strategies. Let me tell you why I sinned. In that moment, I was not relying upon the Lord. I was walking according to the flesh. Going back to Romans 6, I presented myself to sin. And guess what sin did? Sin does what sin does. It produces death. It produces death. And now I had a situation in my family. There there was conflict. And sin did what it did. And it happened because I presented myself to sin. That was the issue. I need to walk by faith more consistently. That's the solution. Not check off a box that I did it. Oh, 29 minutes more. That should really get me through today without sinning. No, what am I doing with the other 23 hours of my day? Am I depending on my hour in the word or am I depending on the Lord for the other 23 hours? See the difference? There's, it's a subtle difference, but we have this knack for going back to legalism. And so I think Paul was teaching in such a way that he wanted Gentiles to obey even his teaching on righteousness. And God was accomplishing these things through Paul. One of the things that we also know is that in the area of salvation, the Spirit of God was convicting Paul's audience of sin, of righteousness and judgment, and Jesus was drawing them to himself. You know, Jesus says in John 12 that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So in light of Paul's ministry, in light of the message, in light of the deeds that we're about to look into, in light of those things, God was in the background drawing people, convicting people uh, so that they might respond to Paul's message. And that's what we see here in terms of working together. And how does God accomplish things in and through us? Well, one of the things that we've got to understand is that God may have something for you to say to somebody in your sphere of influence. What you'll never know is how God has been preparing them in the background behind the scenes, ready for what you have to say to them. And that's why it's not about looking down your branch, trying to figure out your fruit, trying to strategize. If I say this, they're going to say this. Our job is to abide. Just enjoy the Lord Jesus. Respond to how he's leading to us and leave him the results. And so how did uh, God verify or validate Paul's ministry? Well, verse 19 is going to tell us he did it mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that uh, from Jerusalem and round about Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And see, one of the things that Christ accomplished through Paul via his spirit were mighty signs and wonders. But I want to show you how, how teaching and miracles actually came together in the Gospels uh, and also in, in the book of Acts, especially. We're going to look at really Paul's ministry here. But one of the things that we've got to understand in our day, many people want to separate teaching from signs and wonders. The Bible never does that. It brings those two things together. One is designed to validate or to verify the other. Um, And so look with me at Acts chapter 19. We'll see this very clearly in verse 11. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. It says, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. And now you can see where the faith healers on TV get this handkerchief idea, right? I mean, it's, it's, they'll go, there, hey, it's biblical. But, but in all seriousness, this is what was going on with Paul. God had this, this design to set Paul apart in a unique ministry that even when people just brush their handkerchief on him, you imagine the, just the incredible power of healing that God could work in and through an apostle like this. But notice what we didn't read. Go back up to verse 8. Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. 
But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And now verse 11, now God worked unusual miracles. You see the tie. He's teaching. He's reasoning. He's, he's giving words. This is what we saw in Romans 15, right? He, he's what Christ accomplished through him in words and deeds. And so he's teaching the word of God. But what is God doing in the backdrop? He's confirming his message with signs and wonders and miracles. Okay, and so we see that there. You know, another place we see it is in Mark's version of the Great Commission. Go with me to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 in verse 20. And we're going to see that, that the Lord used signs and wonders to confirm the apostles' teaching, um, especially in the early years of the church. And we'll kind of talk about that in the next passage we're going to look at. But look at Mark sixteen twenty. And they went out and preached everywhere. Again, there's the message, there's the words, there's the teaching. They preached everywhere. And then notice the next phrase, and the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. This word confirming means to make firm, to make reliable, to warrant security and to inspire confidence. Why was that necessary in the early church? Well, it's real simple. There were a lot of false, itinerant, traveling teachers and philosophers in the first century. In fact, probably a a new one or two or three showing up almost every week in every community, like the old snake oil salesman that you saw in the Wild West, right? Hey, I've got this oil. It's going to grow hair on your head. And every bald man in town would go buy this guy's oil. And by the time they realized it didn't work, um, they were gone, right? At least with essential oils, you can find the person that sold it to you, right? And come back. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. That's a bad joke. Sorry. But you know, this is, this is the reason. He had to confirm Paul's message. Everybody was coming into town with the message. In fact, think, put yourself in their perspective. Polytheism rampant. God's uh, uh, galore. Uh, you know, Athens, to, uh, you know, the altar to the unknown God, just because we don't want to offend one we're, that we're not aware of. And just this, this, this uncertainty of living. And here comes a man to town who can show you from the Old Testament scriptures why Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, why God put all of this together in terms of salvation from sin. And then he verifies the message with miracles. Okay, I believe this guy because I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen a handkerchief heal somebody. In fact, you, you go back to Acts 19 and you're going to see that other people were trying to duplicate what Paul was doing. And, and, and even the, the phonies were like, I command you to come out of this man by the name of Paul and the Jesus that he preaches. And remember what the demon said to him. Well, Paul, we know, Jesus, we know, but who are you kind of deal? And so they couldn't duplicate, but they saw that this, that this was really giving uh, ver- uh, uh, what's verification to, to Paul's message. Now, flip with me back to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to see, again, just this concept that God used uh, miracles, signs, and wonders to verify the message. Hebrews 2, 3 Um, Again, that the Lord was bearing witness to the apostles' message with signs, wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's read Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, this word bearing witness is an interesting word because it's, it's got a Greek preposition on the front of it that, that really combines the two. It's, it's bearing, to get, uh, bearing witness together. Witness together with what? Well, with the words spoken. And this is what God did to, to separate and to distinguish his message and his messenger um, in the life of the Apostle Paul. He took these signs and wonders and bore witness together. Notice also that these signs and wonders, and this is very important in our day, they're done according to God's will, not the will of the apostles, right? You know, an apostle didn't just show up to a coliseum, fill it up and say, tonight I'm going to heal people. 
That's, that's not how that worked. <laughs> you don't just, just set it up and start calling it down in, in your timetable the way that you want to do it. No, it happened according to God's will. It happened according to God's timing. When God wanted to verify a message, he verified it through a miracle. When God wanted to encourage Paul to trust him, he wouldn't heal his friends. This is why he, he left, uh, who was it? Uh, Trophimus sick in Miletus. Epaphroditus was, was close to death. Paul couldn't do anything about it. And, and Timoth, poor Timothy, stomach issues, right? Paul's like, he doesn't say, hey, wait till I get there. I'm gonna lay hands on you and we'll take care of this whole business. He's like, no, drink some wine. That'll help your stomach, right? So it wasn't Paul just doing it when he felt like it. It was God doing it according to his will, according to his timing. And let's look at one more passage, 2 Corinthians 12, where God uses signs and wonders to validate um, not only the message, but the specific apostolic ministry of Paul. Now, you would think that if a church in Paul's day, if Paul had come to town, there was no church that existed. Nobody was saved in the community. Paul spent time there. People got saved. People started walking with the Lord. That when Paul left, Paul would still be a hero, right? He'd still be the man in their thinking. But no, he wasn't. In fact, it happened in a couple churches we know about. The churches in Galatia, Paul leaves. And very shortly thereafter, people come in and say, hey, guys, we like Paul. Good guy, good guy. Just didn't have the whole message. Let me just tell you what you really need. And the Galatians bought into it. They said, oh, you know, here's Paul. And here's just traveling guys into town, criticizing the one who had actually brought them the message in the first place. Corinthians were doing something similar. And that's why when Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11 through 12, he, he says, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. Paul's basically, I shouldn't have to tell you or prove to you that I'm an apostle. You guys know I brought you the message. You've seen these things. What have they seen? We'll keep going. For I had to have been commended by you. For nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Verse 12, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And so what we see is apparently there were specific signs in this day that validated and verified Paul as an apostle, that there were apostolic signs that were unique to apostles that Paul was, was engaged in, that God was accomplishing in and through Paul. And see, this was needed even in the first century because these churches uh, began to get knocked off course by false teachers, began to undermine um, and just discredit Paul's authority. And you know, when you think about the credentials that the apostles carried with them, this was largely it. It was a message and it was this ver verification and validation ministry by the Lord. In fact, this is how they were putting down the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 talks about the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Now there's no other foundation which can be laid except who? Jesus Christ. And so this is the way they began laying the foundation. And just like any foundation laying uh, service, it, you got to be careful with your foundation. Foundations are key to everything. And that's why going into the next verse, we're going to see why that's so key. But I want to show you one other thing. Uh, it, turn with me to 2 John. First of all, scrape off the dust on that one page in your Bible, because we don't spend a lot of time back in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, especially 2nd and 3rd John. But I want you to notice the progression. One of the things that Paul tells to the Corinthians as a proof is he says, hey, weren't there signs and, wonder that, signs and wonders that accompanied my ministry, that verified my ministry as apostolic as the truth? And I want you to notice how some 30 years later, we're, we're in the mid-90 AD now, 30 years after Paul um, writes most of his epistles. I want you to see what John says. I want you to see where John goes for, how do you validate and verify an itinerant teacher? Look at verse 10. 2 John, verse 10, chapter 1. Okay, then I know people are there. All right, cool. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. What are you looking for? 
by mid-90s? You're looking for signs and wonders to validate or verify messages? No, you're looking for the truth. Is, are they teaching the apostles' doctrine? Are they teaching the word of God? Is what they're saying line up with the word of God? And that's why I had somebody I was talking to one time involved in the signs and wonders movement who told me to throw away my Bible and just trust him. And on the basis of 2 John 10, I can't do that. I, I have to validate and verify what he's saying with the recorded word of God. Not, hey, watch me, you know, you know, take this guy's leg and increase it by an inch. I mean, that's, that doesn't validate or verify the message anymore. It's the doctrine of the word of God. That's what we're looking at. And so where did Paul go? Well, he says that he went all around from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Um, Illyricum was just the name of the Roman province that encompassed the entire area we would know as Macedonia and Greece. I've got uh, a map up here. So we're looking at this area. Of course, Corinth is down here, but he's talking about Jerusalem down in here, all the way up into this area. He had completely covered this area with the gospel. We know after his Roman imprisonment that he also went down uh, to Crete and evangelized the island of Crete because he's leaving Titus there to appoint elders. And so uh, we also have from, from church history that he probably made his way over to Spain, which Spain is kind of, you know, over here somewhere behind the baptistry on the, on the wall there. And so again, it would have included some of these areas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. This is what he's talking about in terms of where he's been. Uh, remember, he's writing the church of, to the church of Rome from Corinth uh, presently. And so it's interesting to note um, that the word preached is actually supplied by the translators here in verse 19. It's not there in verse 19. It's actually in verse 20. And that's probably why they slid that up um, into the passage going back to uh, Romans 15. Uh, 19, that word preached is actually not there. And so what is there is this, this word fully. And it translates the Greek word plerao. It just means to make full, to fill a vessel or a hollow place. That's why I've got the pitcher pouring water, filling up a cup, illustrating it there. And so when you look at, which, which honestly, I don't think you need to put preached in there because I, I love the way this reads literally. If it's not there, it reads this. Uh, I have filled up those areas to overflowing with the gospel of Christ. See, I like that. I like the way that even reads in words. Now, one of the things that I, that I find really interesting about that statement is, do you think Paul, let's just be realistic here. You saw the area that that covered. Do you think Paul literally talked to everybody in those areas? Do you think Paul personally had a conversation with everybody door to door, house to house with everybody in those areas? And I, and I would say, no, I don't think he, he had. But what had he left in all those areas? He had left disciples. He had left future disciple makers. And so via his disciples, that message had spread. You saw when he spent two years in Ephesus at the school of Tyrannus. We read that in Acts 19. It said the, in, all in Asia heard the word of God. Paul couldn't have done that himself. He, he had set times and set teachings and he taught certain people. But you know what? People took the message, bought it, went out, and Jesus Christ began to accomplish things in them as well. And this is why Paul can feel like he's got this area full and overflowing. In fact, jump down to verse 23. We're kind of sneaking into next week. But look, it says, but now, no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you. You know what Paul is saying? I got nowhere else that, to go that they haven't heard the gospel already. Now, isn't that incredible? We're not, we're not talking about 50 years of ministry. We're, I mean, this isn't a lifetime. This is just somebody was active and engaged. The gospel was, was ripe. There was, there was pickings to be had. People were ready for that. And they were buying into this concept of disciple making, not just coming to a building and sitting to hear someone teach and then going home for the rest of the week. That wasn't it at all. There was actually buy-in. There was actually belief that, wait a minute, you're saying God can use me? God can use me at my office? God can use me over here? God can use me in the hobbies? God can use me with my family? You mean I don't have to just go get Paul and drag him everywhere with me so that he can share the gospel with all the people in my life that God has designed me to share the gospel with? That's what happened. That actually happened at a point in church history. People were engaged. We, they were engaged with the gospel. They were responding to God's calling. And so verse 20, 
Paul has a, an ambition. He says, he's made it his aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. We kind of get to his strategy here. This is uh, an ambition, something to aspire for. What did he aspire for? What did he want? Well, um, this word reflects earnestness, strong ambition. It was a passion, you could say, uh, for Paul that he wanted to preach the gospel. This is what he aspired to. He wanted to proclaim literally the good news. But what's really interesting about this is he had a very strategic audience, a very strategic um, type of person that he wanted to proclaim this message to. And what was that audience? What was his aim? Well, he wanted to preach it to an audience where Christ was not named. He wanted to take this message where people who had never heard of Jesus Christ. And so not only is he uh, wanting to reach unreached areas, but he wants to reach unreached groups. And I want to put a, another perspective um, in here that oftentimes we don't consider. And I think part of, part of the way this is communicated, we automatically think, well, we want to go places where they've never heard the gospel. By the way, if you talk to an average American on the street today, and you ask them, what does God require of them to get to heaven? Um, you know, the bulk of them are going to be very confused about that answer. They're not really going to have a, a clear answer. They're going to do their best. You know, it's just kind of like in school when the, when the teacher catches you, you weren't paying attention. You do your best to try to give them something. You start throwing out everything you've ever heard religiously. And you just try to just cram it in there to get this person off your back. They'll do their best to answer you. But you know what? If you specifically walk them through it, if you say, what, did God, what do you think God did for you so that you didn't have to go to hell? Many people, never been to church, never, never even sat in a Sunday school class, they'll say, oh, well, Jesus died. Like they know that. They, like that's part of their, their knowledge bank. But they're not relying upon him for salvation. But they know parts of the gospel. We celebrate Easter every year. They, they hear it uh, in the news. They hear, I mean, people know the components of the gospel. They're just not relying upon him. So, you know, part of, part of uh, the, the strategy when people read this is, well, I'm not going to, I don't want to have a ministry in America. I just want to go preach where, where they've never heard of Christ. And there, there's, some, there's some truth to what's saying here. But, I, but in context, we've got to understand this, that when Paul wrote this, when the biblical author spoke of Christ, they, they use that word Christ, they're talking a technical term used in the Old Testament of the Messiah. So when Paul says, in light of his ministry that we looked at last week, specifically to the Gentiles, who's he talking about here? Where was Christ not named? Well, it's not, not named among the Gentiles. He's still talking about his unique and special ministry to the Gentiles. In fact, where was Christ named in Paul's day? Every synagogue that ever opened their Old Testament scroll talked about the Christ, talked about the Messiah. And that's why you'll see when Paul does have ministry to every synagogue, every town he goes into, where does he start? He starts in a synagogue and what does he do? What does he do? He convinces them that the Christ, you'll notice he uses that phrase, had to suffer, had to die, had to rise again. And when they begin to agree with him and see that their Old Testament scriptures pre, uh, predicted that, then he would take a step further and say, and by the way, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. That's when like I've said before, all hell broke loose and all heaven broke loose at the same time because people received the message and some people rejected the message. You can see that very clearly in Acts 17, uh, the first four verses, if, if you want to look at that. So he wanted to, uh, his strategic aim was to lay uh, this, this ground floor foundation. And you know, the only foundation that, that Paul viewed as acceptable was Jesus Christ himself. He says that in 1 Corinthians 3.11, there's no other foundation than that. And so before building up, as they might say, it's always wise to know what you're building on. You know, if you, you come into a building and the foundation is poorly laid, um, you're going to have a problem. You might start getting cracks in your walls, but you know what? The, the walls are not the problem. The foundation's the problem. 
You, you might start having issues in your plumbing, pipes breaking, but the plumbing's not the problem. The foundation's the problem. You can go on and on with everything that composes the superstructure of a building. If the foundation's bad, everything else will be bad. And I think Paul was wanting to get in on the ground floor because if you don't get on the ground floor and you don't establish a foundation, you will deal with nothing but problems in church ministry. And that's, and that's just the nature uh, of any church ministry if you can't get in and establish that foundation. And one of the things that we're going to see uh, in verse uh, 21 is that Paul had a ministry that, that he believes was a partial fulfillment of the Old Testament. In fact, look at verse 21. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. And so Paul quotes Isaiah fifty-two fifteen here. Um, and it speaks of the Messiah. It speaks of the suffering servant, you know, to whom he was not announced. In other words, to the Gentiles, Christ wasn't announced. They're going to see him. They're going to recognize the value of the Jewish Messiah. And those who have not heard, they're going to understand this message of what Christ did for them. Now, uh, the Jews didn't see it, but God had given a, a small little hint. He was going to do this. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the Abrahamic covenant when Paul later says that God preached the gospel through Abraham in Galatians 3, 7 and 8, he said that, that God preached the gospel through Abraham saying, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so there was this little seed dropping, but, the, but most of the Jews of Paul's day uh, did not see this. And so Paul viewed his special ministry target, the, these Gentiles, this apostle to the Gentiles as this fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And by the way, what comes after Isaiah 52? Isaiah 53. Does that, does that ring a bell? I mean, that, that's one of those most beloved passages of all time that detail what Jesus Christ was going to do to take care of the sin problem. He was bruised for our iniquities, right? The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. Right? All of these things, we, all we like sheep have gone astray. Right? All of these things poured on our substitute. And so Paul kind of views himself as kind of mentioned here, this special unique ministry to Gentiles kind of alluded to here in Isaiah 52, 15. Now next week, Paul's going to get even more personal um, in discussing his plans for a future visit. And, but you've heard the phrase, the best laid plans of mice and men sometimes what? Go awry. And we're going to see that Paul had some really good plans, um, but God's plan superseded his. And we'll kind of navigate that as we work the next couple of weeks. Let's pray. Lord, thanks. Um, we just, we're just encouraged to, to see Paul's ministry. Lord, knowing that his ministry was unique and special um, in the sense that he was uh, an apostle. He was laying the foundation of the church. And in our day, we're simply um, involved in that building process, uh, helping to uh, just continue to build on the foundation that was laid. Um, Lord, but we just, we just need your encouragement uh, today. We need your, uh, your challenge in our life. Each one of us uh, who have put our faith in Christ are gifted and skilled in certain ways uh, to be a part of this building process. Lord, we just want to um, play our role. Uh, we want to we want to just uh, rejoice and brag about what Jesus Christ is accomplishing through us versus what we're accomplishing for Christ. And may you just burn that distinction in our thinking uh, as we go about our lives this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.